School Leadership Podcast from NAHT Edge and NAHT. Hello, you're listening to the School Leadership Podcast brought to you by NAHT Edge and NAHT. This month's podcast is a maths special. We'll get to grips with big ideas such as mastery and fluency and also discuss the government's proposed times tables checks for primary aged pupils. Later in the podcast, we'll also hear about significant upcoming changes to data protection rules and what school leaders need to do to ensure they're ready for them. Teaching, Teaching. Leadership. leadership and the latest developments in schools. So to our guest this month, who's a maths specialist, Professor Mike Askew. Mike has worked in education for almost 40 years. He's taught at all levels, including teacher professional development and led research projects throughout the world. He's also written numerous books and articles on the subject of maths teaching. EDGE director James Bowen caught up with Mike following a day working with primary teachers in Hampshire. We've heard a lot recently about learning from Asian methods when it comes to teaching maths. Do you feel that's, that's the right way to go? Um, and if so, what are the key points we should be taking from such approaches? I think we can learn a lot by looking at what's going on elsewhere. And it's interesting that people talk about Asian approaches. If you look at the origins of those... Um, the Singapore curriculum is very firmly rooted in the Cockroft Report, which was out in the UK in the 1980s. And um, a lot of the work that's done in uh, Shanghai has its origins in research that's been done in Sweden. So uh, stuff kind of travels around the world. You know, I, I think it's dangerous to kind of lump something together and say the Asian approach, cause, because the, the, even the people in Singapore would say there isn't a Singapore approach. There's a, there's a commonality there because of being a small state nation many people have been through the same system so it's perhaps not as diverse as we've had in England but I think it is interesting to look at what's going on there and I think there's a lot we we can learn from it but the context does make a difference so I don't think we can we we can't lift it wholesale from there and bring it here because I think we have different expectations um, particularly when it comes to to parental expectations and, uh, and a different history But I think the things we are learning from it is that clearly children can do more mathematics than I think we might have expected that they can do in primary school. I don't don't believe that there's anything in the kind of Singapore water or the Shanghai genes that make them better at maths. But I think there is that, you know, they, they do talk much more about effort, whereas a typical... A typical staff room in the UK a few years ago, and I think to a certain extent now, would be talking about ability. Um, so they do they do see children as being able to learn more if they put the effort into it, and I think that's something we need to encourage. Um, and I think if we look at some of the things in particular around how in Shanghai they the examples that they give to children um, are very very carefully constructed. They've had. You know, they've had a curriculum in China for hundreds of years, I believe, and, and, and it's, it's grown incrementally. And so there's a history there of, of knowing what works and looking at how you construct the sort of tasks that children work on and the sort of examples they get to do um, that, they know, that they've refined and they know, they know work. And I think there is, there's a lot of stuff we can learn from that. 
And the word mastery seems to be everywhere, really, in mm. terms of maths at the moment. Um, and I'm not sure perhaps we've got complete, agree- complete agreement in terms of what it, exactly what it means. So I'm interested to, to hear from you. What do we mean when we talk about mastery? Or what should we mean, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> and, and where does the idea actually come from? Okay, all right. Well, I, I can answer the second question first, because that's easier. The evidence is that the first person to have to kind of use the word mastery in, a, in an educational piece of writing was Benjamin Bloom, famous for his taxonomy of, of thinking. And back in the late 60s, he wrote a piece where he argued very strongly that um, these are my words, not his. But his kind of, his kind of model was that there's a deep-seated belief that mathematical ability comes, or any ability, but let's talk about maths, Mathematical ability comes in three sizes, small, medium, and large. Uh, and, you know, kids come in and we put them into the small maths group, the medium maths group, and the high maths group. And a lot of our practices in the past have encouraged that. Um, his argument was that essentially that becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, that if I label you too quickly as, as being not as mathematically competent as your peers, that the, the schooling system kind of reinforces that and you end up not being as good as your peers so he his argument was that we we should we should try and uh, get as many children to a high standard as we as we as we possibly can uh, irrespective of where they started and not to prejudge too quickly the the challenge it posed which it's posing here now is what they found after a few years that um what was happening to children who were who were able to deal with with what they were being taught more quickly than their peers they were being given busy work to keep them quiet while everybody else caught up and so i think that one of the big challenges to us is is how we we have a we have a tradition we have a, a very strong ethos in british education that that it's about meeting individual needs. There's a lot of lot of talk about differentiating to meet individual needs. If you look at places like Shanghai and Singapore and Japan, which also has high attainment, um, they they are much more concerned with how they get the collective to a high standard rather than particular individuals. So I'm interested now in the idea of what mastery actually means in practice for schools. You know, if I was a, a maths leader trying to implement a mastery approach, what would I be seeing in school? What, what would it look like? We we've got a we have a again a, a kind of tradition of talking about progression in maths. Um, you know, we it, the image that that we often invoke is is kind of going up a staircase or going up a hill. You know, we. We still, despite the government getting rid of them, people are still talking about levels. We've, still, we've now got mastery with depths, and we're now going down rather than up. Uh, we've got stages. Our language is peppered with, um, with, with this, this quite linear model of learning, that, that progression is very much a kind of stepwise... You know, you, you, if you imagine a, a staircase um, that, that, it, that you're going up, neat little steps at a time and I think one of the one of the possible misconceptions that's around about mastery is is that that it's it's what I would call kind of precision teaching that you 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 take a small bit of something and you practice that and practice that until you've mastered that and then you're given the next bit 
that for me is not mastery teaching. That's that's precision teaching. That you you just add tiny increments to what pupils are learning. Mastery is is really about immersing children in a lesson where they're they're talking about the mathematics. They're focusing on some key ideas within the mathematics, um, and and spending a long time really immersing themselves in those in those core big ideas, whatever you want to call them, and and building on them. So you know people. People are surprised that in some of these countries they will, you know, they'll spend a whole term doing nothing but numbers up to ten. The idea is that by really, really focusing on on a on a core idea, which is number bonds to ten and how the numbers to ten work, that um, you probably only need to revisit that once or twice more for the for the for it to to, to be really solidly embedded. So the, the learning is 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 kind of. Is kind of flatter at the beginning in in terms of these images of what it looks like, but but it takes off much more quickly later on. Um, and again, I think that's one of the one of the areas that we haven't quite got right here. We we still have a hell of a lot of stuff in key stage one um, that people are struggling to get through. And so I, again, I'm not sure we've completely squared that. So do you think the curriculums? still over overloaded if you had your way would you strip some stuff I out would yes if I would two? I would I would strip some stuff out um, and organize the curriculum uh, around some core ideas um, that, that 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 would would work through um, and 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 delay some ideas until later and you've talked about in your answer about the idea that you know progress is not being linear mm. um, do you think a mastery approach requires a different approach to, to assessment? It, it depends on what what sort of assessment you are you are you are looking at. So if, if we take summative assessment, if we take the, the, the key stage two assessment, let's um, you know which like it or not you know is there. Um, if we were really if we were really going to go down a, a true mastery route, it wouldn't be a percentage pass. You know the the one of the criticisms about the old level system, about the 10-level system, was that a child could have a level four and go into secondary school and, and, you know, be great on geometry, but know very little about fractions. Uh, Telling kids they've got to get 60% on the key stage two test doesn't take that problem away. Um, It just just shifts it somewhere else. So you can still get 60% on the test and know nothing about fractions. So it's, it's still not... It's, we haven't got a mastery assessment at the end of Key Stage 2. Um, you know, a true mastery assessment would be you've got to get, you've got to get 95% on this, folks. Um, that there's no compensation if I want to be assured that you know everything that we think you need to know. But that would be, again, that would be a major rethinking and a major reduction in what was being assessed there. We'd have to, we'd have to agree that the really core stuff that kids need to know, um, because the breadth of stuff, nobody can, nobody can master that breadth of stuff at the age of 11. So we'd, we'd have to reduce it. There'd have to be a strong, strong debate. When it comes to, um, to classroom assessment and to formative assessment, I think... One of the things I'm I'm playing around with at the moment is, you know, the the, the national curriculum is, is is has as its three aims: fluency, reasoning, and problem solving. And one of the one of the difficulties with problem solving and reasoning is is that they don't fit the same kind of model of progression as fluency does. So, I'm not even sure that fluency does, but you can kind of say, 
you know, it's easier to work with numbers to 20 than it is to work with numbers to, to 50 and so on. So there's a kind of there's a sense of progression in, in number skills and fluency. But when it comes to thinking about number relationships, um, recognising that um, 2 plus 3 is the same as 3 plus 2, the thinking behind that is no different when you're working with 2 and 3 than it is when you're working with 236 plus 478 is the same as 2478 plus 236. So reasoning doesn't have that same progression built into it as the number appears to have, as fluency appears to have. And so I think it's helpful in assessment terms when we're looking at classroom assessment and formative assessment to, to move away from this kind of linear model of progression to a kind of landscape view of it, that I've got these ideas in addition and subtraction, I've got these ideas in geometry, I've got these ideas... You know, is, you know, is it harder to know about parallel lines than it is to know about equal angles in geometry? Well, it, it isn't. It's just different. So I can't put those in an order, but I can kind of place them on a metaphorical landscape and look at how children have got an awareness of, of moving around the landscape and how things are connected. Um, and so the assessment has to become more holistic, I think, when it's classroom assessment and looked at over time rather than these kind of staging assessments that we've had in the past. And you mentioned there the three aims, you know, fluency, reasoning, problem solving. I think most people would probably be quite comfortable with fluency. I'm interested in, in the other two. And if you perhaps could just tell us, what do we really mean when we talk about reasoning and problem solving? And how are they different? Because I think for some time, perhaps people would use those terms, not necessarily interchangeably, but they'd be very, very closely linked. What, what's the difference yeah. between the two? So I, 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 at the crude level, I think fluency is, is knowing how to do something. So if I know how to, to multiply two numbers together then I, and I'm fluent and I get, I'm getting it right in 90% of the time, then I can say I'm fluent. Problem solving is, is, um, is taking that how... And, and applying it and saying, you know, what would, what would be the answer to this problem? And for me, reasoning is, is, is also being able to say why um, and go beyond simply producing an answer to actually looking at, at underlying mathematical generalities. I think, I think problem solving is... is, is there's, a, there's mixed perceptions of what problem solving is about. So, you know, classically... When I was at school, we, we did the chapter on multiplication and then the last two pages were the problems. You didn't have to think about whether you did multiplication or not because you, know, you, you knew you were in the chapter on multiplication. So it wasn't problem solving at all. So for me, a, a, a problem is only a problem if you genuinely do not know what to do. If you know what to do, then it's not a problem. It's just more fluency disguised in words. So problem solving means putting children into a space where they're going to be slightly confused at first, and I've got to support them through that. And the reasoning is helping kids step back from particular, from particular answers to look at what's going on. We're too fixated in primary mathematics on thinking that getting the answer is the be-all and end-all. That If I can add 16 and 17 and get 33 as the answer, tick, that's the end of it. But I want to talk to the kids about, if you add 16 and 17, you've got three, 33, and that's an odd number. So you added an even, you added an odd, you got an odd. Is that always going to work? Um, or is that, is that just a coincidence there? Um, and the evidence is, from 
longitudinal research now that actually it's it's the reasoning it's being able to look at underlying structures and 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 unpack what's going on in general terms that's a better predictor of how children are going to do later in mathematics than simply being able to do the calculation but it's harder to teach it's much harder it's much easier for me to stand at the board and say today i'm going to show you how to do long multiplication than it is for me to say today we're going to explore what happens when you multiply two numbers together and so there's a lot of evidence that teachers who do try and get reasoning going in their classrooms meet with some resistance from the kids because that's a natural reaction to it. And what they end up doing, what we all end up doing, is because the atmosphere feels uncomfortable as you start to say to the kids, oh, we'll do it this way, I'll show you what to do. And so the reasoning gets taken away from the kids and it turns into another lesson where it's me as the teacher showing you what to do. But everybody feels happier. I'd like to ask you about how you see the role of textbooks in this, because it strikes me that uh, textbooks in maths went out of fashion probably for a couple of decades, but they seem to be having somewhat of a resurgence under the new approach. Yes, um, you know, I quite like the aphorism that a, that a fool with a tool is still a fool. Textbooks themselves are, are textbooks. They, they're just there. It's, it's how they're used that makes, that makes the difference. In a sense, textbooks have, have probably appeared to have gone away but what they got what they've been replaced with is photocopied worksheets so you you don't have the textbook but you do have 75 75 photocopies and you know life's too short if you're a teacher to actually you know pretend you're not using a textbook by actually creating your own worksheet but what you've actually gone to is a textbook to actually do it so I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think textbooks are in and of themselves the work of the devil, um, but I think, I think we have to use them judiciously. In mathematics, like any discipline, you need to practice things. You do, you do need. But if I've got a page of twenty calculations and I can get the first five right, do I need to go on and do the do the next twenty or the next fifteen? Probably not. Um, and I think one of the things we we are learning from the the by looking to to what's going on in places like Shanghai, is that is that textbooks there are very carefully constructed. So again, when I was at school, you know, typically you did question one and you forgot about it, and then you did question two and you forgot about it, and you did question three and you forgot about it. Um, you know, the, the, it, or you were doing the same thing, you didn't have to think, once you'd done question one, you didn't have to think about it to do question two. A well-designed textbook um, now, the question two will somehow have a link to question one, and question three will have some link to question two. So it's not, it's not a variety, it's not a kind of rag bag of things I have to work through, um, but it's a carefully constructed sequence. So that at the end of it, there's the potential for the teacher to talk about the examples as a whole rather than just go through and say, OK, who got question one right? Who got question two right? Who got question three right? So again, it, it, it's about this idea of depth and reasoning. So you can have a conversation with the children about, you know, why, you know, what's, what's linking all of these examples together. Some of the textbooks that we've had in the past haven't been that carefully designed because because it was just like, you know, if I can produce a page of 20 problems for the kids to work on, it doesn't quite matter what those problems are now. So I think we've got wiser about what a good textbook looks like, but a good textbook still can't replace a good teacher. 
And whilst I've got you here, I have to ask you about your views on the, the recent announcement of uh, multiplication screening checks, what should we call them in key stage two? Yeah. Um, what are your view, views on this idea? Okay, well, nothing divides the mathematics education community m- more than, than the, the thorny question of, of, of multiplication tables. So my, my position on it is, is that um, children do... And I'm, I'm, using, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. We, we, we talk about the tables here, okay? I personally do not believe that all children benefit from learning to chant the tables. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't think they need to know the content of the tables, so, again, if you look, if you look to, um, to places like Shanghai, they, they teach the multiplication... So I'm going to call them the multiplication bonds. They teach them very differently to the way we teach them. They, 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 they only go up to 10 times 10, so they don't have the 12. That's another matter. But, but they, they, don't do, they don't do the whole of the 2 times table. They do 1 times 1 and 1 times 2. Uh, sorry, 2 times 1 and two times two, and that's it. They don't go any further with the twos. And then threes, they'll do one times three, two times three, three times three, and that's it. One times four, two times four, three times four, four times four, that's it. So children at five only have to learn those seven, eight facts. They don't have to chant the whole of the two times table. And so you're saying, well, where's, when do they get to learn seven times two? Well, they do that when they get to the sevens later on. So they work on the idea that if I know 2 times 7, I know 7 times 2. I, you know, I don't need to learn it twice. I don't need to learn 2 times 7 in the, se- in the 2 times table. And I don't need to learn 7 times 2 in the 7 times table. If I learned it in one, I can apply it in the other. So I think we can be smarter about how we teach it. Um, and and I, I, you know, I, I do firmly believe that you know, I need to know that 3 fours is 12 quite quickly. Whether that's best assessed through sitting a child down at a timed computer test, what the impact is that that's going to have both on how it's taught and 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 how children feel about being put under pressure. So, you know, if if I say to you what's what's seven eighths, and and you go, okay, well I know four. I know seven fours is 28, so it's going to be double that, so it's 56. Are you really any worse off than going 56? So I want, you to, I want kids to be able to get the answer in a reasonable time. I, don't, I certainly don't want them making 56 tally marks. That, that is um, dangerous and unnecessary. But at what point do you say, actually, you're okay because you can go 7 eighths is 56, but you're not okay because you're going 7 eighths, 28, 56. You know, I think the danger is that, that the ends drive the means. And so kids are going to be pressured to, 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 to do it rapidly. And those kids who could get there just given a bit more time and thinking strategically and, and using their number sense are not disadvantaged. The ones who are really disadvantaged are the ones who are having to go uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Yes, those children need some special provision. Um, but but this, this kind of one-size-fits-all, 
you know you've got to do it in three seconds and if you if you can't then somehow you're you're not succeeding i I do think there are dangers to that naht edge is a union and professional association aimed at teachers with leadership responsibilities whether you're a subject coordinator year leader key stage leader early years leader senko or head of department we offer full trade union protection and high quality advice In addition, our weekly newsletter and monthly podcast keeps you up to speed with the latest developments in education. Membership of NEHT Edge costs just £13.50 a month. Find out more by visiting www.nahtedge.org.uk. Data protection is perhaps not at the top of most school leaders' list of priorities, But new legislation coming into force next year means that schools will need to review and update their policies in this area or potentially risk incurring significant fines. Our senior specialist advisor, Guy Dudley, outlines what the legislation means and what exactly schools need to do. The changes come in in May 2018 and they're going to be called the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, And this is a European-wide activity. The Information Commissioner's Office is the UK's representative on that European-wide panel. Um, And that is going to develop a a new legal framework for England and Wales and Northern Ireland uh, that will effectively replace what people commonly and typically understand to be the Data Protection Act. The good news for schools is that it's going to have very little immediate impact um, and it's important that we, we recognise that. Uh, schools already have uh, keep great quantities of data and it's largely well regulated uh, by the employing bodies, by the local authority uh, and the Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, however, uh, although it's going to have an, a little immediate impact, the greater impact will be longer lasting. And this is, in effect, a wake-up call for schools to ensure that they get their acts in order. Uh, so they've got about a year uh, from now to ensure that uh, they get their single central record in order, uh, they get their definitions uh, well set out in policies uh, that they may want to uh, devise now, using our advice to uh, perhaps devise a policy. They assign roles and responsibilities uh, and they get it on the agendas of governing body meetings uh, and other sort of leadership group meetings so that they can start planning. I think really they ought to begin the new term uh, and perhaps the new academic year as a year in which they prepare and plan for the new legislation because it will come around very quickly at a time when you and I both know that lots of other things will come around very quickly as well and this won't be the only thing on the agenda. And without wanting to, to frighten people, what are the kind of risks, if you like, of, of not being up to date or not following the legislation for schools? Well, I think in practice, data underpins so much decision-making for schools that I would hope that they would want to get their houses in order so that it will uh, impact on many of the decisions that schools make in terms of resourcing, curriculum, etc. But the risks that they they will incur if they don't pay sufficient attention to this uh, important matter, is that uh, clearly they may attract attention from the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, because the way in which the the legislation will work will be that the ICO have greater sight of the practices of schools. So they will want to see, through Ofsted, that schools have got 
policies in place that help to manage this uh, particular activity. Um, there may well be, uh, if the scrutiny doesn't produce any positive outcomes, there may well be fines imposed, financial penalties imposed on schools uh, for shortfalls in uh, basic standards of practice. Uh, if anyone suffers a loss, whether that be a member of staff or any worker associated with the school, because the school has breached the data protection uh, regulations as they may apply at the time, um, that person would be, then be entitled to claim for any losses directly from the school. Um, so there, there, there's certainly financial risk. Uh, and finally, there's reputational risk. Um, we've, we've, you and I both know that and people out there will be aware of cases where data has gone missing. Uh, it gets into the wrong hands. Um, that, per, that school can then become uh, the, the, the sort of subject of unwanted media attention. Uh, and that is likely to have quite a, a negative impact on the reputation of that school. And from your experience, what kind of things happen? When does this go wrong? Is this about teachers leaving unencrypted memory sticks with pupil data? And what's the kind of common things you hear about when people call? Yes, I mean, it's it's very much about the, you know, the, the basic standards that have, have slipped. So you're absolutely right. Passwords are, are absolutely essential for especially sensitive personal data, and encrypt, encrypted passwords are even better. Um, where data is kept in hard copy, just simply making sure that that is kept safely during the day and locked away safely at night, and building that into a policy and assigning roles and responsibilities to that so that many of these risks can be pra very practically mitigated uh, by having some fairly straightforward practices, but assigning some roles and responsibilities to ensure that those practices are then and are therefore feel full, fulfilled, um, so that, that schools don't really fall foul of that. It's about just giving it a little bit of attention uh, and making sure that where there are security protocols, there is someone there physically to back them up. And if we get really specific now, in terms, as you said, from the sort of start of the new school year. We need schools and school leaders to be to taking action. Can we give people maybe two or three key things they can be doing in September, practical things to get their sort of house in order, if you like, ready for the change to legislation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it's really important to get this on the agendas of governing bodies uh, or, or the sort of order equivalent. Um, it's not data, as we sort of know, isn't the most... Uh, isn't the subject that's going to get many people excited, uh, but it is critical, and we use it all day long. School leaders use it all day long to make their decisions. Uh, so it is critical to give it some attention, and I would suggest that it gets put on a, an agenda, not just once, but as a standing item. Uh, if there are only three or four uh, governing full governing body meetings per year, uh, if they start in September, there's only going to be a three or four opportunities to discuss this, throughout the whole of next academic year. So I'd get it on agendas. Uh, I'd make sure that there were someone, uh, someone in school was responsible for drafting a policy and they can use our uh, advice and guidance that they can find on the, our website to underpin that policy. Uh, assign roles and responsibilities uh, to it. This won't be a lot of, there won't be a huge investment required here, um, but it will require some attention uh, from the school um, and I think finally just to make sure 
that schools have got the proper security protocols in place uh, for protecting uh, soft and hard copy data, and that they are ready to handle subject access requests. Uh, so these are requests that anyone could make from the school, requiring all information to be provided and published to them uh, through the subject access request. Schools have 40 days in which to comply with this request, but it's often one of the best tests of readiness. If you can handle a subject access request, and there are details of how to do that in our advice, um, then the chances are you're more likely to be ready uh, than not. And that, that I would say, get it on the agendas, assign roles and responsibilities, draft a policy, and it really ensure that you're ready to handle a, a subject access request. And if you get those things right, uh, get them on the agenda as a standing item for next year's governing body meetings, uh, I think you'll be fine. That is all from Guy. If you'd like to read more about these changes, further details can be found in the advice section of the NHT website. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School Leadership Podcast. We'll see you next time. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.naht.org.uk forward slash join. You can also follow us on Twitter at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News. This is the School Leadership Podcast.